Hello, friends, and welcome back to the second ever Healthier Together podcast episode. The Healthier Together podcast is all about coming together and sharing our knowledge to live happier and healthier lives. And this is the second ever episode of it. So welcome, welcome. Each episode, I will have a guest and I have some amazing, amazing guests this season. I have best-selling authors, world-famous doctors, award-winning chefs, TV stars, movie stars. I have a celebrity hypnotist. I have basically the coolest people on the planet and I somehow got them to sit down with me so that I could pick their brains and find out their stories and share them with you guys. So this is the second episode and it is no exception from any of that. Today's guest is Lily Diamond, who you might know as Kale and Caramel. Lily is the author of the beautiful Kale and Caramel cookbook and she's the woman behind the Kale and Caramel blog, which is like an exhale of a blog. I go there and just look at the beautiful pictures and all the delicious produce and herbs and flowers. And I feel like I'm living in California, which I wish I was sometimes, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's pure magic. Um, Lily is, first of all, so Lily is kind of a genius. She went to Yale and she's a brilliant writer, but she also has this kind of insane background. She started out her life on a commune in California before growing up in Hawaii, where she was completely immersed in this life of natural healing. She'd get sick and her mom would pick herbs from the garden to heal her and she ate organic food and she plucked mangoes from the yard. And she basically had the kind of childhood that I have always dreamed about, but I mostly ate hot dogs that were microwaved. They were kosher, but... Yeah, that was my childhood. Um, So Lily's living this sort of magical life in Hawaii and and really steeped in the natural world. And then her mother got cancer and it challenged all of these beliefs. We dig into this in this episode and we dig into how Lily was really shaped by her grief and how she moved through it Um, and how how it really changed her impression of what the natural world can and can't do in terms of healing. I think that she came out from it with a really, really interesting perspective that I'm excited to share with you guys. And also, if you've ever lost someone or just been afraid of losing someone, this is a must listen to. Lily's story and her wisdom is so profound. And she also has the most beautiful sense of our place as people in the world, in our bodies, in relationship to other people, in relationship to the environment. And she shares how she got there and she shares kind of her thoughts on all of that, which I really took away and I've been sitting with since our conversation. We also talk about her favorite healing herbs and essential oils. So if you've ever been interested in any of that, this is a great starter episode. We talk about how to get comfortable in your own body. We talk about the role of ambition. We talk about how intuition plays into health and how to tap into that. We also get into food a lot. Lily used to be a vegan She's a very strong vegan for a number of years. And we talk about her journey into veganism. And then we talk about her journey away from it, which is really interesting and how she eats now and how she feels is the best way to eat for her body now. Um, And if you haven't checked out Lily's beautiful cookbook yet, it will teach you the healing power and utter deliciousness of herbs and if you want to feel the the therapeutic power of food, but also really kind of their, I don't know, their sexiness and their sensuality, it's a must read. So I'm going to leave the link to her cookbook in the show notes. And I will also leave the link to her Instagram and her blog in the show notes so you can find her everywhere that she is. 
Thank you guys again for listening. This is my first little batch of three episodes and it's the beginning of what will hopefully be a much longer, larger journey. And it is such an honor to have you guys all here at the beginning of it. I already feel so much healthier and happier from everything I've learned from all the people that I've interviewed so far. But I feel like I've just been sitting on all this information and I want to shout it from the rooftop. So it's such an honor to finally get to share these things with you. And hopefully it will start to change your lives. So I'm really excited about that. In the name of that, I have introduced something that I'm calling the Healthier Together Challenge. Um, It's just, I'm going to pick one sort of salient, interesting bit of advice or wisdom from every single episode. And then I'm going to turn that into a challenge. So maybe we'll all meditate together. Maybe we'll all tweak our diet in some way. Maybe we'll all try a different skincare hack or something like that. But the point is just to take the lessons that we're learning and make them real and actually change our lives. So I would love for you guys to come and join in the challenge every week. You can find it on Instagram at Liz Moody. You can also find it under the hashtag HT podcast, HT like healthier together. Um, So come check it out. I think we all do it together. We can support each other and we can actually get healthier together. That's, That's the goal. See what I did there? Um, I'll also be doing a giveaway for every episode, whether it's the a book that the person I'm interviewing wrote or a a product that they love that they feel like has actually really changed their life. So always check on Instagram for that at Liz Moody. Um, And that is it for today. If you love this episode, please, please uh, subscribe and leave it a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. It's so, so important, especially in the early stages of a podcast to help people find it and, and, and be able to listen too. So I really, really appreciate anybody who takes the time. I mean, I appreciate you listening, period. But if you take the time to write a little review, I appreciate you a little bit extra. Um, So thank you so much for doing that. All right. And without further ado, this is Lily Diamond. All right. So thank you so much for joining me today, Lily. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to be here. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is something I have always been fascinated about with you. You grew up in Hawaii with crazy hippie parents, which I feel like is my dream in life. But my parents were the opposite of that. They gave me like boiled hot dogs for dinner and didn't know anything about natural remedies. So can you tell me a little bit about what life was like growing up? Did you have a sense that it was different than the mainland or were you just like all children have avocado trees in their backyard? (laughs) I think when I was young, I definitely had a certain amount of, you know, myopia about my world. And I did feel like, well, this is just normal that, you know, I run outside and crush hibiscus leaves and put them in my hair um, and pick avocados and passion fruit and apple bananas and strawberry guavas and all of that. Um, and I, and, and as I grew older and particularly, you know, I know you and I have talked so much about reading and the worlds that we get to access and occupy as as readers. And I think as soon as, as soon as I really started to dive into books, which was very early and my, you know, my, even before I myself was reading, my parents would read to me every night before bed. Um, and I read a lot of books that were not centered in Hawaii at all, which, you know, is its own complexity of, um, you know, social and, 
ethnic identity, but that's a that's another topic. But I very quickly got the sense that like, okay, there's a much bigger world out there. And um and I and as I grew older, I think I both felt very appreciative of, you know, my life in Hawaii, but also really excited to explore the world beyond Hawaii. And, you know, I was I was fortunate that, you know, my my parents worked very hard and owned their own business. And because of that, they had some flexibility to travel during uh, some of the school breaks that we had. And so I, I got to see the world beyond Hawaii in a way that really made me want to, to explore. Do you, when you, so you were in Maui, right? And you were in sort of the farm area of Maui? Yeah. So, okay. I grew up on, on the island of Maui on the slopes of Haleakala Crater. Um, so the Haleakala Mountain or Crater as it's technically called, um, the peak elevation there is about 10,000 feet above sea level. Um, it snows up there on the, on, in the winter. I was so surprised by that when yeah. I went to Hawaii and they're like, yeah, it snows on the mountain. I was like, what? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the most incredible things about Hawaii, and I think something that really influenced me deeply in just how I perceive the world around me and my connection to the earth is that Hawaii has, um, I think about 13 out of the world's 15 or 16 microclimates, which is just crazy if you think about it. I mean, it, you know, everything from rainforest to cloud forest to desert to, you know, the Mediterranean climate where I grew up was a more Mediterranean climate. Um, and we were at about 1700 feet elevation. Um, so, you know, it would get chilly at night, but the weather is sort of ridiculously perfect a lot of the time. (laughs) Did you feel Hawaiian or did like, do you feel like you kind of self-identify as a Hawaiian person or did you always feel like because your parents were almost ex, I want to say expats, even though it's not a different country, um, because the culture is so different, did you feel like that almost expat child syndrome? Well, I never felt like an expat per se, but I certainly felt othered. And, you know, there's very, very complex um, geopolitical and sociopolitical history of colonization in Hawaii. And that those tensions are current and they're present. And, um, you know, not only am I white, not only did my parents come from uh, the, you know, continental United States over to Hawaii, but uh, I'm also deeply white. I'm a redhead with very (laughs) white skin. And, you know, that like in the literal sense of whiteness, like I, I don't have, you know, the melanin that my skin needs to tan. And so growing up, uh, kids in school would, I mean, whatever, you know, kids are mean to, to everyone all the time in school, but there was definitely a lot of questioning around, you know, what, like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you just go to the beach? What's wrong with your hair? What's wrong with your skin? Um, in a, in a way that's very interesting, the, you know, whiteness, the way that it is, uh, has, you know, it, it has taken on the, the role in dominant culture that it has in much of the Western world. Um, 
has ha, has that hold in a certain way in Hawaii, but also does not. You know, it's not the in many ways it's it's not the dominant culture and the um, Native Hawaiians and the uh, what's called local culture, which is a sort of you know mixture of um, Asian influence. Uh, Polynesian influence, other Pacific Islander influence, Filipino, Portuguese influence, all of that gets, um, you know, mixed up all together in Hawaii and has, it becomes this sort of third other culture that is really the dominant culture there. And I, that was a culture that I never could really feel a part of. That's interesting. Um, did you, were your friends all mixed? Were they some people whose parents had kind of moved out there and some locals and did everybody kind of hang out together or was there a separation? There was definitely a separation. Um, I almost said celebration. There's a celebration and a separation. No, there was definitely, uh, somewhat of a, of a separation. Um, and yet I think, um, you know, a lot of it as with as with any, you know, racism, any ism is um, hereditary. It's passed down. It's how the parents are talking to the kids about it, and and so you know, I think that gets mirrored in in the hallways in school and and in the classrooms and in the cafeteria. Um, so I think it, it was it was both. And I mean, my you know, my best friend growing up was, uh, half Jewish, half Eastern Indian. So, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, there was, there was a lot of, of mixing happening all around, I would say. And your parents were hippies who lived on a, I know you lived on a commune until you were two. Had they been on the commune for a while before you were born? They had, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a commune in the strict sense that like, I think, you know, one of the defining elements of a commune would be that, you know, everyone is, is living together and not everyone was living together. There were pods of people who lived together. Um, and then a sort of, you know, cultish tinge to the whole experience. <laughs> um, the group was called the Alive Tribe and they, you know, in really in the, the seven, late seventies and then eighties were doing all of these, um, psycho spiritual release workshops with people and all of you know the sort of pseudo shamanic new age spiritual work that has become part of our uh modern day parlance with you know people like Gwyneth Paltrow and such taking an interest in in these things nowadays but um i we lived there until i was 2 and um, it was, you know, I still have some connection with some of the other kids who were there and that's really interesting to, you know, hear some of their experiences. I haven't had a ton of opportunity to talk to them, but at some point I would, I would love to sit down with all of them. Can you imagine how interesting that would be? <laughs> Just like yeah. here. Was it, was it the kind of place where people didn't, had to like get out or escape later to just sort of naturally dissolve as the sixties and seventies passed or how did it end? It naturally dissolved. I, I think probably in the late eighties and, and early nineties. So a bit after my parents left and I have, 
you know, I've grilled my dad about, I know why my parents left. Um, my, they, there was some money being asked for and my parents weren't super comfortable with that. And my dad also really loves sports. He loves to watch sports and they were like throwing him tons of shade about watching football. And he just was like, I'm out. Like, I can't do this anymore. I need to be able to watch football, which I find hysterical. But um, I've grilled him about whether there was ever any, you know, funky sexual stuff going on, because usually that's what does it. And he says that there wasn't. So is the, he, one does of the he founders, still... oh, yeah. one of the founders okay. actually follows me on Instagram and comments on stuff. And like, she's very up to date with, with my world. Have you talked to her? No, I haven't. I mean, not, not, no, I haven't, I haven't spoken with her in, I mean, I think, I don't think I've ever really had a, an, I mean, I certainly have never had an adult conversation with her. I don't know if I've seen her since we left when I was two. Do you, did it leave you with positive feelings about the idea of communal living? Like, would you ever do that stuff's kind of re-popping up? And I'm certainly interested. I have fantasies of, you know, buying a farm in Sebastopol and having a, a nice version of a communal life. Do you ever, has that been ruined for you or is that still appealing conceptually? Definitely appealing. I think, you know, the roots of utopic living... <laughs> are always so seductive, right? I mean, the thought is like, we need each other, you know, as, as, as individual humans and as community, we, we all deeply need each other. And I think that idea of having a farm and everyone getting to, you know, have their own separate home, but coming together over meals and sharing community and, you know, building a world that is, um, you know, some, that represents the kind of world that, that we'd all like to ultimately live in. Very seductive. So no, did not you, ruined. Did you get a sense from your parents about how, like what the downfalls were in their age of the communal living that we could solve now to make it more possible and better? I didn't. I think that, um, you know, one again, my parents lived separate from, from the group and there were pods of people that lived together. Um, but it seemed on the whole, just from what I know that, that actually the group was, was they, that they were very good to each other. You know, they took each other in when they needed to be taken in and, um, they helped raise each other's kids. Like the, the kids who were in the alive tribe were 100% like my brothers and sisters up to the point that we left. My favorite health hacks are the ones that have the biggest payoffs for the smallest amounts of effort, and this is such a good one. When you are drinking your tea or coffee in the morning, just add one packet or scoop of Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Peptides. I definitely was a bit of a collagen skeptic until I had dermatologist Dr. Whitney Bowe on the podcast. You can scroll back to her Ask the Doctor episode. She said it is not a myth. There is research to support how great collagen is for your skin. And then, of course, I did my own deep dive, and I was so impressed with the known benefits for things like your skin, your hair, and your joint health. Studies show that collagen can help improve your skin's hydration, which is something that I am especially looking for during this time of year when everything just feels a little bit drier. 
Zach likes the marine collagen, and then I like the grass-fed beef collagen, but both are incredibly well-sourced and certified by third parties, which is the number one thing that I look for. And since I've started incorporating collagen into my everyday routine, I have noticed strong and healthy nails and my hair feels thicker and fuller, which we love. And Zach's knees are feeling so good despite all of the time that he is spending running. One of my favorite things about the Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Peptides is that I cannot taste them at all and they dissolve so well in hot and cold beverages. Not all collagen can dissolve in cold beverages and some days you just want an iced tea. To try out Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Packets or their bigger tubs, use code LizMoody for 25% off. Yes, 25% off. That is a huge discount off of your first purchase at greatlakeswellness.com. That is LizMoody for 25% off at greatlakeswellness.com. I have been looking for a quality fish oil to take myself and recommend to you for years, and I genuinely couldn't find one that met my quality standards. And then I kept hearing from doctors on the pod about how important it was for our brains and our hearts, even dermatologists who said it makes a huge difference for our skin. And I was like, okay, I truly need to figure this out. Then I found O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil from Puri. The brand was literally created because the founder ran into the same problem as me. He couldn't find anything truly pure enough to take daily. Puri believes in full transparency with all of their products. Every single batch is third-party tested by the Clean Label Project and IFOS, which tests fish oils looking for the highest quality, safety, and purity standards in the world against more than 200 contaminants, heavy metals, pesticides, glyphosate, dioxins, and bisphenols, to name a few, and they always receive a 5 out of 5 star rating. Every Puri bottle actually comes with a QR code so you can scan and see the results for yourself. This is well above the standards of any other fish oil I've found, which is so important to me because if I am consuming something for my health, I don't want it to actually be causing harm. Puri's fish oil is so fresh, you'll never get any gross, fishy burps because every batch is tested to make sure it hasn't oxidized and gone rancid. And yes, that is where those burps come from. Do not just take my word. With Puri, you can find actual data behind every single batch, which makes Puri a supplement brand that you can trust. Right now, Puri is offering my listeners 20% off their O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil and all of their great products. Go to my special URL, puri.com slash Liz Moody, and use my promo code Liz Moody. This even applies to the already discounted subscriptions. You will get almost a third off the price. Go to puri.com slash L-I-Z M-O-O-D-Y. Do not wait. Use promo code Liz Moody at P-U-O-R-I dot com slash Liz Moody. That's really interesting. So then, okay, they moved to Hawaii. They Why did they pick Hawaii? Did they just love it? No, my parents actually met on Maui um, in the uh, 70s. They met in a parking lot of a grocery store and they saw each other from their respective vehicles. And then later that evening found each other again in this like hippie enclave in the jungle over in Haiku on the North shore of Maui um, in a hot tub on this property owned by uh, one of my father's best friends who the woman who my mom had traveled to Maui with also knew. Um, And both my parents were recovering from divorces. And 
Um, my mom lived in British Columbia at the time. She is from like from a you know good Jewish family in South Bend, Indiana, and had really left uh, left left the state, left the Midwest. She lived in British Columbia and had been studying aromatherapy and herbology there for um, a couple of years. And my father lived in Northern California at the time with his son, who was around 10, um, who was from his first marriage. And he was, I think, just coming out of his second marriage, airing all of my father's dirty laundry on this podcast. Um, And uh, he had gone to Maui met my mom. They became friends. They kept talking on the phone, went home. And apparently their first date story has it. Their first date was a trip to a road trip to Central America and my father's VW popped up van with his son. Oh my God. That's amazing. And they, they just, he did, did your dad invite your mom and was just like, we're going road tripping, baby. Yeah. He asked her to come down from Canada and she went, which is, it is actually bonkers. It blows my mind that she actually went because she is not, my mom passed away about, uh, it'll be 10 years ago this summer. And she was not an adventurous you know, an adventure seeking, wanderlusting type of human at all. So I, you know, I haven't, I, I hadn't, I, I did not have the chance to sit down and ask her about this as an adult, but my sense is she must have really liked him to go on this trip. And she actually got sick on the trip and came back halfway through. What did, what happened? She ate some ice um, in Guatemala and got, I think, like hepatitis C. Oh my God. Yeah. And had to come back and take care of herself. Oh my God. (laughs) Take antibiotics, et cetera. That's such a love story to live up to. Yeah, I know. So they lived out the, you know, hippie VW van dream, um, road tripping and she, even though she got sick, she was still interested and ended up eventually moving down to California to be with him and his son. Oh my God. That's amazing. Um, so, okay, yeah. so they move to Hawaii together and you grow up surrounded by wellness sort of in all senses, right? You're growing your own herbs. And if you get sick, you're getting tinctures that your mom is making and aromatherapy and all of that. Can you tell us a little bit about what that type of childhood was like? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I grew up with my mom concocting a lot of the remedies that we took when we were sick. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm reading Jonathan Kaufman's book, Hippie Food right now. And it's a fascinating story of the subtitle of the book is how back to the landers, long hairs and revolutionaries changed the way we eat. Have you had a chance to to pick it up? No, I have it sitting on my desk right now. Um, but I, yeah, I think it. you're, I think you're really going to enjoy reading it. And, um, one of the, uh, some of the history that he gets into of how, um, you know, the, the first strains of, this hippie food movement came over from Germany. And, um, a lot of it was from, you know, these German philosophers, including Rudolf Steiner, who, uh, was the creator of 
um, the Waldorf education, Waldorf schools and philosophy, um, which, you know, I ended up going to a Waldorf school on Maui. So I'm, I'm starting to put together all of these pieces that kind of influenced how my parents really chose to live. And a lot of, um, that philosophy really vilified, uh, you know, like modern medicine and processed foods and all of the, the, uh, sort of, you know, current, um, trends in like food and wellness that that we're very obsessed with were you know coming to the U.S. starting in the early 20th century, um, like just the very beginning of the 1900s, which is just fascinating. And so, my parents, so much of how my parents chose to live was really uh, rooted in those ideas that you know we needed to get our food from the land. So many of which are wonderful, right? But um, some of these ideas are also pretty extreme. And so I grew up with, you know, instead of taking antibiotics, my mom would take out a pendulum and use a pendulum for dousing, which is, you know, basically you would hold, my mom also studied, um, homeopathy for years and years and years. And so, uh, in homeopathy and, and with other treatments as well, you often will douse using a, a pendulum where, um, you, you yourself, or you would have the person who needs to be, uh, healed, hold the, whatever the proposed medicine or, you know, homeopathic remedy was, and you use a pendulum, um, to essentially you ask a question of it and you use the pendulum to sort of tell you whether this is a good remedy or not. And so I grew up with that being completely normal. And, you know, my mom teaching me how to basically do Reiki, you know, use, I, she didn't use those terms, but to use the energy of the universe to, you know, flow through my body and through my hands to, to heal myself and to, you know, be very conscious of, thought and, and food and eating and where our food came from and how to use the plants that we grew to heal ourselves and all of that. I mean, it was a very, um, holistic approach to, to living and to, to healing. And then your mom got cancer 10, 10 years ago. Yeah, she was diagnosed in 2000, the end of 2006, and she passed away a year and a half later. So um, that, you know, com completely broke open everything that I thought I knew. You know, my mom had sent me away to college with a this beautiful little, you know, remedy case that she had laminated pages that I still have of like, you know, if, you're, if your throat hurts, take this. If you're, you know, starting, if, if you're having allergies, take this. If your stomach is bothering you, you know, take, you know, this Chinese remedy. And that was what I knew. And I knew to, you know, sort of be cautious of Western medicine and, um, you know, even to know that there was that divide is you know, I think very unique. Um, most people wouldn't have to label Western medicine as Western medicine. It's just medicine, right? Um, so she was diagnosed very late uh, with stage 3C endometrial cancer. And, and 
Did she opt for conventional treatment in addition to natural treatment? No, she did not. She had, she knew that she had um, endometriosis for, you know, years leading up to it. And she had had other um, challenges with, uh, you know, her reproductive organs and reproductive system. Um, She had scarring in her fallopian tubes from a botched IUD removal from one of the very, very early IUDs and didn't know if she would be able to have kids actually. And she had me quite late. She had me at 38. I shouldn't say quite late. Let's scratch that. She had me at 38. (laughs) And, um, and so she, uh, I was a surprise because she didn't know that she was going to be able to have kids. And, um, you know, she then had, uh, ovarian cysts removed when she was 50. And at that point they wanted her to have a hysterectomy and she chose not to, um, which is really interesting. You know, I'm certainly not a medical authority, but it does seem that if she had, it could have really changed the course of her life potentially. Um, and then at 62 was diagnosed with, well, she, prior to the diagnosis, she also knew that she had endometriosis and she was working with a naturopathic, um, women's health specialist who was a, a physician. Um, and she was doing some natural hormone therapy and, um, then, you know, got this diagnosis and felt very strongly that the proposed conventional treatment of chemo and radiation would kill her faster than the cancer itself. And so she did a number of different alternative treatments. She started working with an oncological nutritionist. She went to a sort of homeopathic uh, oncological um, specialist and, and center for this particular special kind of therapy in um, Belgium and in Switzerland and was there for, I think, a month or two. And I moved home at that point to help care for her and just be with her while she was sick. And um, she then passed away uh, a, a year and a half after she was diagnosed in 2008. When she passed, did she still firmly believe that Western medicine wouldn't have been helpful for her disease? Yes, she did. Her conviction was so strong. It's it's interesting. One of the most uh, agitating and profound questions that somebody very close to me asked me um, after she died was, did, did it upset you? Did it make you mad that she didn't do absolutely everything that she could? Mm. And I realized when this person asked me this question that I actually didn't, her conviction was so strong. Her belief in natural, you know, medicine and in the, the sort of, um, harshness and perceived a detriment of Western medicine was so profound that um, I didn't feel like there was even room for me to try to change her mind. Well, and I imagine in her mind, she was doing everything that she could. Yeah, I think so. And she said, I will say, 
that she wasn't, she didn't dismiss it point blank. She had our family doctor um, at home on Maui look at the proposed treatment that the oncological uh, surgeon had given her of chemo and radiation. And she asked him to look at the, um, the outcomes. And she said, if there is more than a 50% success rate with this treatment for the type of cancer that I have, I will consider it. And there wasn't. And I know now from my extensive medical experience watching Grey's Anatomy um, <laughs> that, that a 50% success rate is incredibly high. Like that that's a very, very high success rate. So I think that, you know, it seemed rational then, but I think if I if I had done a little bit more digging, I might have done more protesting myself. I'm not sure, but I just kind of, I felt very, you know, I was um, 20, let's see, I was 22 or 23. I think I was 23 at the time. And I, I felt like I knew nothing, you know, I, I, I didn't, I certainly wasn't, you know, an oncological specialist and I, I could, I could do research, but, um, you know, looking at the conviction of mind of the mind in the face of death is a very fascinating exercise. And it helped, it, it really shifted me and my, my perspective on a lot as well. What, what did it shift? Uh, well, at the time I was completely, when I, when I was, um, helping to care for her, when I moved back home, I was hardcore animal rights activist vegan. And, um, my, I had been raised vegetarian, but we start as a family started eating fish and, um, some animals some you know, seafood, animal protein when I was about 13 and I never liked it. And so by the time I was 20, um, I would always kind of pretend like fish was tofu to get it down, which is, you know, the opposite of, I think what most people do. Um, but I, I decided that I was going to stop eating fish when I was about 20. And then when I was 21, from 21 to 24, I was vegan. Um, when my mom started working with the oncological nutritionist she worked with, they wanted her to start um, having some animal protein. And they felt like, you know, she was a little bit depleted in, in that regard. And um, she, I was doing all the cooking at the time. And she asked me to, if, if I would be willing to make bone broth with from a chicken. And she, when she asked me, she was absolutely um, mortified to be asking me. She was really embarrassed that it was going to upset me because I was vegan. And she knew that I, you know, I mean, I had never bought a chicken. I'd never cooked a chicken because I just, I didn't, I'm an omnivore now. But the reason that the food on kale and caramel and in my book is completely vegetarian. I I don't know how to cook meat and I feel like there are a lot of people who do. And so I, I leave that to them, but it was not anything I'd ever done before. And, 
I could see that she was kind of scared to ask me. And I felt in that moment, like it, I realized that I would have, I would have, you know, done anything to help her. And the fact that she was embarrassed to ask her daughter to make her some chicken broth was so, uh, it was embarrassing to me. It was sad to me. And I realized that I, I also, at the time I was, um, I was teaching yoga full time and was very immersed in yoga philosophy. And I was teaching yoga philosophy and I was espousing a lot of very specific, clear teachings about how to live to large groups of other people. And I realized that a lot of the beliefs and the ideas that I was espousing on a day-to-day basis were not beliefs that when put, you know, to the fire or placed in the face of death, um, they didn't hold up for me. They weren't fundamentally true for me. I hadn't lived through them in a way that proved them. And I think it's really easy to, to believe things that we, that sound good and it's, and, and, you know, feel good and make sense when things aren't difficult. But when things were really difficult, I got to see what I actually believed and what just sounded good. Where did it leave you in terms of your beliefs of the healing power of plants and natural medicine and eating well as a protective health thing? I mean, I, you know, I'm a firm believer. I think most of the time I, I eat a plant-based diet because it's what feels good. And I think part of the challenge is that our society as a whole has gotten so far from eating what feels good and doing what feels good that we don't even know when something resonates well in our bodies. And so I think that's part of why, um, the, you know, the, the movement around, you know, pure eating and superfoods and wellness and cleansing and all of that has taken hold is because people want to get back to a state where they can actually just feel what's going on in their bodies. What a gift that is, right? To like when you're able to feel the way that something influences your body, that's a that's a gift. And and I think being able to listen to our bodies in that way is is a tremendous tool. And I I'm at a point where I want to use all of the tools that I have available to me. You know, I want to use the the plants and the, you know, this the spirulina and the um ashwagandha and whatever else and and I also want to use the medicine that has been developed over the past, you know, however many centuries that can now also work hand in hand with natural uh, medicine to heal us. And I think together, and, and I really think that's like, that is who we get to be. And it's part of what's exciting to me about this particular moment in time. And I, is, is that if we get away from the extremism of one movement or the other, we get to see that we really have this opportunity to have both sides working together 
to bring us, you know, further and deeper into health and wellness and then into health and wellness, not just on a physical bodily level, but on uh, the level of consciousness and really understanding our interconnectedness as, as a whole, you know, human people um, than we ever have before. So you didn't have a sort of crisis of faith or a, even like an anger or resentment at natural medicine where you were like, well, my mom put her faith and trust in you and you sort of failed her. And now I'm going to go completely the opposite direction. I did in the sense that I went to, you know, the doctor who, you know, my, my traditional uh, medicine, medical doctor, um, after she died, I think, I don't even know if I had a primary care physician at the time. So like, you know, I belonged to Kaiser and would just go to specialists. And so I think I, I got a, a primary care physician and I went to them and I said, look, this is my medical history. I want you to test me for absolutely everything that you possibly can. And that's really been my, um, my approach since then, you know, I've had genetic counseling, um, to try to get them to, to do genetic testing for genetic screening for me, but they, they won't, which, you know, is, I, I mean, I'm sure I could pay for it out of pocket. It's very expensive. Um, but I don't have enough risk factors. They, they have like a sort of, you know, calculated formula that, that shows risk factors and then allows them to test. But because the kind of cancer that she had is not generally hereditary, aside from a few, um, particular strains, which I don't have the markers for, um, they, they won't give it to me, but I've really committed to, to use, to doing what she didn't do, which is saying, I'm going to use every possible route that I can, um, that I have to, to take care of myself. And I'm going to find out everything that I can, um, far before, you know, there's hopefully there's a problem. Knock on wood. Um, you know, have you, so have you not tried 23 and me or would one of those not have the information at the level you would need it to be? It's so funny you ask that. Um, my, uh, saliva sample is in the mail to them right now as we speak. Um, however, I didn't opt for the, uh, the, the screening, the medical screening portion of it, um, because yeah, they don't have the testing that I'm looking for. The testing that I'm looking for is specifically, um, is, is related to a bunch of cancers and other things. And 23andMe has like late stage Alzheimer's and stuff like that. Yeah. I really want to get the medical test, but I only want to know about it if I don't have any markers for anything. I want like the you're in the clear and you can't really get that. Totally. Even if you give it to a friend and they don't tell you something, you're like, well, I'm fucked there, you know? Right. And I went, I, I scanned through all of the markers that they test for and each one of them felt like, yes, this would be great to know. And it, none of them were things that would have profoundly shifted the way that I am living right now at all. And so I felt like they were all things that I would just find out about and then I would be waiting for the gauntlet to fall at some point without being able to really do anything. So I, I decided not to, but they do keep your sample. So I figured, you know, if at some point I decide to return to it, I will be able to select that. So, so. you're just trying to find out where your red hair and all of that comes from? 
I'm curious. Yeah. Well, I'd been thinking of doing it for a long time and my father uh, called me a couple weeks ago and asked if I wanted to do it. And so we both did it and I told him, great, we can now find out if I'm, if I'm actually your daughter. I was talking to or a if friend it was somebody about else that. in the alive tribe. Yeah. I was talking <laughs> to my friend about that. And she said that it comes with all of these warnings because like one of the FAQs for it is why do me and my siblings DNA differ so much? And it's like, well, cause you're not actually siblings and it's, it's unveiling all of these secrets in people's families that have been long buried. Yes. I've heard some great stories about that too. It's amazing. Yes. Really wonderful. It's crazy. Um, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. I really, I want to, I want to try it at some point. Um, for sure. I'm just, I'm a little nervous, but I am, I think because in, in America, I have all of these friends in other countries and even in smaller towns where they grew up and they're in the same town that their mother and their grandmother and their great grandmother and their great great grandmother was in. And I didn't have that situation at all growing up. I have almost no sense of my heritage. So something like that is really appealing to me. I always used to joke that it's the best benefit of being royal, like Harry and William know their family's lineage for over a thousand years, which must be insane. Truly. Yes. That's such a good point. Yeah. I, I am trying to put together, well, not myself, but just in my mind and, you know, collect the information so that I have family trees on both sides. And I have relatives who are, you know, varying degrees of, of, uh, interested and, and very active in compiling all of that. So, um, I, I feel like I have a certain responsibility to continue in that vein and, and sort of preserve the, the knowledge that we have already. I love that. I have a product that is going to change your life. I've recommended this to so many people and they're all floored. It's basically a perfect dupe for the viral Laneige lip mask, but a million times better. And with ingredients that are clinically proven to help dry lips and actually good for you, which is important because you're essentially eating anything that goes on your lips. It is the Osmia Lip Repair Overnight Mask, and it feels like heaven, and you're going to want one for yourself and also to stock up and give them as gifts because they are the best present. They help my dry lips when nothing else works, and I will never be without mine now. And while you're on the Osmia site, you are going to want to stock up on the bar soaps. This is the original product that Dr. Sarah Villafranco, the founder, created, and they have converted me to bar soaps after years of not being able to take the plunge. They're cured longer, so they last way longer than any other bar soap I have ever found, which is amazing for travel. I have been traveling so much recently, and I've had literally the same bar of soap, and they smell amazing, and they do not dry out your skin. Go with the scent that speaks to your soul, but coffee mint is my personal favorite. Finally, if you remember Sarah's pod episode, she has a whole line of products that help with skin conditions like perioral dermatitis, which is when you get red and broken out around your mouth, eczema, and acne, even when nothing else works. She's famous for this. So start with the black clay facial soap and the purely simple face cream if you are like, oh yes, that is me. If you would like to try any Osmia skincare products for yourself, they have so generously created a code for the Liz Moody podcast listeners. Code Liz Moody is good for 20% off your first order with Osmia at osmiaskincare.com. 
Once again, code Liz Moody is good for 20% off your first order with Osmia at osmiaskincare.com. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for more than five years now, I've been drinking AG1. It's just one scoop mixed in water, and it makes me feel energized and focused without any kind of caffeine jitters. I discovered AG1 after a ton of research because I was looking for one simple habit I could incorporate into my day that would support my entire body and cover my nutritional bases. No matter what the rest of the day looks like, I know that I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. I think it tastes delicious too, which I know people are always nervous about, but I think it's like a tropical vanilla flavor and I crave it, especially because I associate the flavor with feeling so good. Of course, we're always trying to eat our fruits and vegetables and balance meals over here, but nobody is perfect. So AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, and adaptogens. I especially love it for all of the travel I've been doing. I think it's a huge reason why I still feel so good and have avoided getting sick despite being on a plane a few times a week for so much of this year and having to eat out so often. AG1 is rigorously third-party tested, which you know I always look out for. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. AG1 is one of the highest quality products to elevate your health, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash lizmoody. That's drinkag1.com slash lizmoody. Check it out. So after your mom died, you've written for me over at Mind Body Green about your grief. And then you also write about it really beautifully in your book. Um, And it seems like it was just this really formative event in creating the person that you were moving through this grief after your mother died. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I, it was a, an incredibly challenging time in my life, not only because of this kind of breaking open of life worldviews that, that her cancer was for me and for my family. But I also was coming out of a breakup and I had been with somebody, I, you know, built a life with this man, um, in Michigan who I thought I was, you know, I kind of, it was my first really big, deep love, but we worked together. We taught together. We lived together. We really, um, we were building a life together. We talked about writing books together and, and our breakup happened literally a few days before my mom was diagnosed. And so when I moved back to Maui, it was not only my, um, moving back to help care for her. It was also leaving behind this other life that I had begun to build. And, and in her death, I, simultaneously lost kind of these two pillars of who I thought I was and the grief. And, you know, I've always been a a deeply emotional person, even, you know, from the time I was very young and very um, kind of subsumed often by my emotions. Some of the biggest work I've had to do certainly in on my mind and in myself has been in, in learning to 
to live and function as somebody who who feels really deeply um and i just was feeling so much so intensely so much sadness and so much loss that I felt like I, I have to find some way to to be with all of this. Otherwise it's going to, it's, I'm going to drown in it. And I turned to the only thing that really I, I had ever known as a constant in my life besides, you know, my, my parents and the love that we really shared as a family, but that was then kind of fractured, um, which was writing. And I, I, left uh behind teaching and the world of yoga and i i just said you know i need to get back to to things that i i can hold on to that i know are really solid for me which you know haha what can we hold on to really nothing but you know still i needed something within myself that felt like a, a center point and for me that was being able to sit you know, and, and look at an empty page and write. And so after my mom died, I, I started working. Um, well, I started, I took a, a course called the art of memoir, um, with an incredible author named Rebecca Walker. And she just happened to be teaching it, um, on Maui. And I found out about it. I thought I was going to have to go. I was preparing to go to some retreat, you know, writing retreat far off somewhere. And it turned out this master class was happening and I took it and I started writing a book that eventually became a a memoir about my time with my mom and through her illness and her death. And that process was deeply deeply cathartic for me. I I ended up just shelving the book, though there are pieces of it that are in um, Kale and Caramel, um, which, you know, as you know, is it's it's a narrative cookbook. So there are stories woven throughout, and some of those are drawn from the pages of that first book that I wrote. But really, that book, you know, was the summation of of my grief, and it's imperfect. And maybe someday I'll come back to it, but it's imperfect in and for, you know, all of those ways that, that come out of that, that grief and the kind of, um, single-mindedness, I think that, that grief casts over you because in the wake of so much loss, it's like, you almost don't even know how to, um, to locate yourself or the, make sense of the world that you live in because the things that, that have, sort of held you in the way that you look at the world together are gone. Um, and so for me, my, my writing and being with that really helped me move through it. Does, does it feel like you're still moving through it? I haven't lost a parent, although it's one of my biggest nightmares. Um, and I always wonder if there's like a moment where you wake up and you're like, this is the world now and it's not my preference, but I'm okay with it. Or if every day you kind of have to like wake up and continue to move through this terrible thing. No, it's better now. It took about five years for me, um, which to me sounds like a long time. I don't know how, how it sounds to, to you or to other people, but 
I remember in the fifth year, I think maybe finally having going through a holiday or a birthday or something without it feeling really tragic, without it feeling like there was something missing from the entire experience. And now there will be, you know, days or weeks where I'll go through them without feeling that sense of, you know, this, this gaping hole in my life. But I do what it, what is with me constantly is the, the awareness of my own mortality, the, you know, ephemeral nature of all of life around me, including, you know, the lives of those I love. And it's sort of, you know, there's a a beautiful Tibetan Buddhist meditation practice of of death meditation where you you know you're asked to reflect on the fact that death is certain you don't know when death will come and when death comes you know we leave everything behind and i feel like i you know i live that i live with that constantly and ultimately though it's um you know, there, of course, it's rattling. It's also, I think, a blessing. It's a blessing to remember that, you know, I only have a limited time here and that I better better do something good with it. I almost just swore. I don't know if we're swearing. Yeah, on, yeah, on yeah. I, I swear um, constantly. Okay. Okay, great. Well, then I'll, I will record that, that, you know, that our time is limited and I better fucking do something good with it. Does that affect you on, I feel like I have a greater ephemeral sense of that. Um, but on a day-to-day basis, I'll, you know, get sucked into doing what's pleasurable, but devoid of any meeting whatsoever. I, you know, going on Instagram for hours or getting sucked into a YouTube hole where I watch every Hamilton video ever. And I leave my day feeling like I did nothing meaningful and I could die any day and it was terrible. Do you feel like you don't have those days because you're more aware of the fragility of life? (laughs) Wouldn't it be amazing if I said yes? Yes, I want, I'd be like, teach me your ways. I can't watch Hamilton on YouTube anymore. No, (laughs) no, I, I absolutely have those days. And, um, and I actually think that, you know, the flip side of, of that urgency is total nihilism, <laughs> which I never want to fall into, um, of feeling like, you know, well, it doesn't matter what I do because nothing matters because we're all leaving anyway. But um, no, and I don't feel that way either. But I, I certainly do feel like I, I, you know, I try to I try to be gentle with myself and to know that if I'm in a pattern where I'm moving really slowly, that, you know, I know that on the whole, I'm, I am a very productive person and I am very rigorous with myself. And that if I'm moving slowly, it's, be, it, it's for a reason. It's because there's something that is brewing that needs time to grow and needs time to be nurtured and, and in order to express itself in and through me. Um, so you know, you never know what's on the other side of those Hamilton videos, Liz. <laughs> well, I hope it's meeting Lin-Manuel and him being like, exactly. I want you to creatively, co- he's my number two crush after Obama. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Those are some and good then crushes. 
Hamilton himself might be third, but I feel like that's less feasible. Um, I shared on an Instagram story yesterday, the letter that Michelle and Barack Obama wrote to the students of Parkland, Florida. I saw it and and I cried. (laughs) So beautiful. A friend and a friend wrote back to me and she said, oh my gosh, even his handwriting is so stunning. This is why he's my perfect man. I'll never be able to, you know, escape it. She was like, everything about him is perfect. Even his handwriting. It's literally, I can't, my mother-in-law for Christmas last year gave me like a special edition of Time or Newsweek or something that was all devoted to his presidency. And I still have it in a drawer because I I can't engage with him for too long or I just get too emotional. I know. I know. I know the feeling. Do you feel like part of the moving through your grief through you? I I feel like your what you do with plants and what you do with um I don't want to say preaching because it feels preachy, but encouraging people to experience this connection with the earth and with the therapeutic properties, both mentally and physically, that to me feels like a very the fact that you devoted your life to it feels like a very daily way of keeping your mom with you. Do you feel like that? And was that sort of part of the process? It absolutely was part of the process and definitely, you know, it was, it was certainly the journey of of the book and the narrative arc that the book takes of using these plants to explore different elements of the healing process through the the healing properties that the plants themselves hold. Um, and And I think I am reminded of her constantly, you know, in the flowers that are, you know, sitting on the table next to the armchair, you know, when I walk down, down, when I walk down to my car and I see, you know, the rosemary growing um, next to, you know, the parking area, when I look out and see sage on the hillside, like I, she is with me in in all of those places, but it feels now um, like a more pervasive settles kind of a presence um, in the way that, you know, she has, she is in the, you know, the neural pathways of my mind in a way that supports me um, instead of, you know, the kind of aching pain that, that came before as, as I moved through that grief, if that makes sense. Mm, Yeah. Okay. On a lighter note, you, the way the book is structured for anybody who hasn't picked it up, it's segmented by herb or I guess flowers too. And, um, yeah, are they all herbs? Basil? I'm like, is oregano an herb? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So it's eight herbs and four flowers. Okay. Herbs and flowers. Um, in a very pragmatic sense, what is your favorite healing herb for medicinal use? And then what's your favorite flavor herb or flower? Your choice. Um, my favorite healing herb, um, uh, well, my, is actually a flower <laughs> is lavender. Um, it's one that for me has just, you know, worked wonders both in terms of, um, creating calm and easing anxiety, and then also, you know, helping to treat burns and um, minor skin conditions. It's just, it's such an all purpose workhorse of an herb. It's also great for bringing down fever. Um, I grew up with 
with lavender, using lavender constantly. It also is a total signifier to me of comfort from my mom. It's the, you know, it's the, the essential oil that she would use most frequently in taking care of me when I was young. So there's definitely that, um, you know, memory comfort there as well. And flavor wise, uh, I right now am just, and uh, you know, for, I go through, I don't go through crazy phases with herbs, but certainly, um, a you know, a, a, a tried and true and current obsession is mint, um, fresh mint. I just think it elevates, uh, the flavor palette of whatever it's paired with in such a an amazing way. Like it feels like it actually goes in and creates space in a dish and in the, in the flavor palette, similar to the way that salt does or can do, you know, if it's not obviously overdone. Um, but something about mint is just so refreshing. The flavor is so, um, powerful obviously, but I, I really feel like it's this space maker in dishes that, that kind of enhances and, and allows the rest of the dish to, to shine even more than it already is. I love that description of it. How do you use mint? Um, I love, uh, finishing savory and, and actually sweet dishes with mint. Um, I'll, you know, I'll put it, I love it in salads, like especially, you know, complex salads with other fresh herbs. I'll, I love throwing mint in, um, you know, even making eggs or an omelet with, you know, yogurt and throwing some mint on top in the morning or for brunches, um, making a big fruit salad. And then at, you know, the very last minute before you serve, tossing some mint in is really beautiful. One of my favorite desserts ever is to just take an ice cream, something just simple vanilla, um, and top it with olive oil, sea salt, and fresh mint. It will blow mm. your mind. It's so good. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, it, it's a, it's incredible. I, it's one of my absolute favorites. And then for the lavender, I, so I, I write about this stuff all the time. And I feel like I write about it and I'm like, oh, lavenders, it's so calming. It's so stress relieving. And then I'm, I'm always like 10, okay, probably like 30% skeptical myself. Do you feel a real difference when you try to use lavender therapeutically? And can you like give me an example of, of that? Yep. So I will, this go, absolutely goes back to what we were talking about before with my approach to um, natural healing versus you know more traditional routes. I'm a huge skeptic and um, I don't necessarily believe in a lot of the the touted treatments and and you know homeopathic remedies and superfoods and all of that. What I do believe in is that our minds are incredibly powerful and that we tend to experience what we and and see what we believe. And so I think in part that's, you know, that's why my mom had the experience that she did with, you know, with traditional medicine. She really, she had a very strong belief and that was what was born out. And with, um, you know, I, I, I think I say this in the book or I've, I've said it elsewhere, but with aromatherapy, I really feel like, uh, you know, there isn't necessarily, um, there have been a few clinical studies uh, looking at aromatherapy, but not a ton. And what I do believe is that, um, you know, smell yourself, like do, do, 
do conduct your own experiment, take the oils, smell them and see how, like, how do you feel in that instant that you smell them? And whatever that is, I think I know that that is real. And so for me, I have this, you know, massive memory catalog of experiences around lavender and other essential oils that influence me. But I also have, you know, a whole set of as yet untested or very new experiences smelling essential oils and just experiencing in the, in that moment how they influence me. So what I know for sure is that I'm going to smell this and, you know, use this on my skin with lavender. I'll use it sometimes with uh, for burns, but in conjunction with other um, treatments. And so I couldn't tell you, you know, uh, about it, its use on its own. Um, but for the mood uplifting and, you know, calming and um, all of those other elements, I will say that I, I do know for me, it does make a difference. And I would urge anyone to to say, you know what, like, yes, we do need evidence of fact-based, you know, double blind tested evidence of all of these things. I 100% believe that. And I think we also get to use what feels good to us. And so try it. If it's something that feels good to you, great. If it doesn't, forget it. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm going to maybe embarrass you right now because I want to just read something from your book. Um, Okay. It's short. Uh oh. Um, it's short. It's actually from the first page, but you're talking about longing. Um, okay, this is this is short, but I love it. From my earliest memories, I was the longing kind. I longed for friends. I longed for boys to like me. I longed for my skin to be darker, my waist to be thinner, my parents to be more normal, myself to be cooler. I longed my way into college, and after that, I longed my way into being in love. I longed myself into jobs and spiritual frenzies and entire personas that were not really me. When my mother got sick and died, then too, I longed for things to be different. I longed for family. I longed not to feel fractured. I longed to feel some kind of home sometime again. I longed for love. And then one day I longed to stop longing. I loved this idea of longing because I think it's something that I struggle with personally a lot. I'm the kind of person when I'm living in New York, I want to be living in San Francisco or London. And then when I'm living in London, I'm like, oh, my life would be better if I lived in New York. And I feel like in some ways, it's really helpful. It's it's propelled my life forward a lot. I've had a lot of career success. And I think that humans need a certain sense of longing for momentum in their lives. But I also think that it can be dangerous because it it encourages you not to be satisfied or present in the, in the moment that you're actually in. So I'm curious with that, you kind of say that you were able to stop longing in that way. I'm curious how you did that. And then also sort of the role that you think longing plays in both a positive and negative way in your life now. Well, I think that um, having gone through, you know, this massive life shift that I did um, and asking myself to to reassess how I wanted to live and what I believed and all of that naturally led to my looking at how I always wanted something, I wanted to, to be something different than, than what I was. And 
to look at this fundamental kind of discomfort uh, with myself that I had lived with for so long. And a part of that is we're taught that and our capitalist culture reinforces that, that we're not okay as we are, that we need X, Y, and Z in order to be okay. And then, you know, from that point, we, we start examining ourselves in comparison to other people and then looking at, you know, our lives in comparison to other people's lives. And, and that cycle is never ending. And if we don't stop it, it never stops. But what happened was I started, um, you know, I had always been, not always, but for years I had been, you know, really uh, deeply immersed in various uh, meditation practices. And a lot of those were incredibly um, you know, they, I, I was a seeker, like my parents had been seekers and, um, so much of like the new age culture and spiritual materialism that came out of it was predicated on, um, seekers and seekers wanting answers from, from teachers and gurus and people who are going to, you know, make up anything that would assuage that longing. Right. And I was, after my mom died and after I kind of came out of this world of longing and, and seeking, um, as I started to work on that first memoir that I worked on and I, I began to work with the teacher who I mentioned, um, the author, Rebecca Walker, uh, as we were working together and as I was working on this book, I started to learn and to see that I, what I really the only thing I really needed to work on was, was myself and that constantly looking outward to try to, um, to fix or to change or to, you know, become something other than who I was, um, was, was deeply detrimental to, to the process of just understanding who I was, where I came from and how those, elements of myself were and and could be you know were gifts and and could be used to um to change in whatever ways you know that I needed to and and to also make positive change in the world around me and not that not that I wouldn't grow and wouldn't change you know elements of of who I was but that um that deep frenzied kind of need to become something else wasn't present um the way that it that it had been before where it felt like there's something wrong with me and i need somebody else to tell me the answers to make myself okay and really that was fundamentally about you know a constant vigilance of watching my mind and making my practice not so much about, you know, this aspirational longing of becoming some, you know, spiritual higher being um, or attaining some other kind of spiritual consciousness, but really the constant vigilance of uh, working with my mind to be able to uh, not have it sabotage me constantly so that that my mind is actually um, thinking clearly and and working with me instead of against me. So would that look like if you have one thought that's negative, you would actually catch that thought and counteract it with 
I'm happy with who I am and where I am? Um, catching it. Yes. But I wouldn't so much say counteracting it as I would say, um, getting to the root of where that thought came from to begin with, and then understanding where it came from. Um, cause we never want to just replace something with another thing that doesn't feel true. Right. Cause we'll react negatively to that, or at least I will. And I think most people will have that, like, you can't really trick yourself into being happy. Um, and I think happiness in and of itself is just as fleeting of a state as, as dissatisfaction, but to have, um, to, to be able to catch the, the thought that is disturbing and then trace it back to its source And then from that place of understanding, oh, okay, well, I'm having this thought of dissatisfaction because I fundamentally believe that something is wrong with me because of X, Y, and Z. And I know that actually that is not true. And therefore I can be free of that thought. And I can have other thoughts that are about, you know, this piece of writing that I want to do or this, you know, casserole that I want to make to my friend who's is sad today or whatever it might be but just having the space to actually be be free of the tyranny of the the way that the mind um can can terrorize us so do you not you said happiness is is a fleeting state do you not live your life in pursuit of happiness I don't think I do no um I I, I mean I want to be happy yes but I think I, I live my life in, in pursuit of, um, of balance, of reason, of creating beauty and of, um, really, uh, creating deep and lasting change both in myself and in the world around me. I don't think that happiness is sustainable because there will always be something that comes up that fucks with it, you know? Like you can't freeze time yeah. and, you know, put yourself in like a an echo chamber where someone is just like massaging you and feeding you ice cream all, t- all the time. <laughs> I would love it if that were the case. Well, and even I was in a situation a while ago where I, for a story I was writing, I got a number of massages and even yeah. that, once you have it in excess, this thing I thought I loved, I found myself sitting there sometimes being like, well, this is boring. Like I'd rather be doing something else. Totally. Or they're not doing it right. Or they're talking to you or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, okay. So I have a few questions that I'm trying to ask everybody. They're a work in progress. So if you hate them, let me know. Um, but in the name of being healthier and happier, what do you think is the best way to spend 20 minutes every day? I think in the name of being healthier and happier, I would say find 20 minutes a day to connect with something that really brings you joy, whether that's talking with um, somebody that you love or finding a way to, you know, go outside and look at the sky or take a little walk and connect with nature. Or, you know, if, if you don't live in a place where there, you know, there are trees and nature around you, just looking at art or something um, that nurtures that sense of possibility and beauty in your life. If you have dry skin, this is going to be your holy grail. 
I've love, love, loved the Osea and Daria Algae Body Butter for years. It is so rich and creamy and lush, but it sinks right into your skin and it makes your entire body feel moisturized and not greasy at all. I actually do not understand how it's so not greasy and yet so, so hydrating. As fall approaches, I'm leaning into mini spa energy, these micro-relaxing moments you can insert throughout your day. Because peppering your day with tiny bits of calm can have huge impacts on overall cortisol levels, on your anxiety, even how you sleep at night, and the smell of the body butter. Holy cow, it is pure spa energy. You get that like laying on the massage table, melting energy. It is phenomenal. I've gone through at least four tubs of this personally, and that is saying something because it lasts a long ass time. A little bit goes a very long way. I also always keep extras on hand to give out as gifts. It uses ingredients that you would normally see in face care products like seaweed, ceramides, glycerin, which I am obsessed with for hydration and think is so underrated, amino acids, even a skin identical moisture complex. Also, here is a little tip. If you want to amp up its hydrating power even more, put it on damp skin right after the shower to really lock in all of that moisture and hydration. Like all Osea products, it's formulated with real seaweed to take advantage of its nutrient-rich benefits like deep moisturization. It's also vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. Osea has actually been making seaweed-infused products that are safe for your skin and the planet for over 27 years. And I personally absolutely love how everything is ethically tested and sourced. For clean body care that gives you skincare-level results, you've got to try Osea. And right now we have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with promo code LizMoody at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order, and orders over $60 get free shipping. While you're there, get the body butter, of course, but I'm also obsessed with the Vegas Nerve Oil and Pillow Mist, both of which help so much with my anxiety. I love rubbing the oil on my hands and inhaling deeply before I meditate to make it feel more intentional and calming and grounding. You are going to want it all. Go to OSEAMalibu.com, promo code Liz Moody. When Zach and I started Healthy Convo Co., we needed to find the easiest way to get conversation cards from our warehouse onto our website and into your hands. I thought it was going to be the hardest part of starting a business, but it wound up being one of the easiest because we just used Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage – Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling gorgeous ceramics to sip morning tea from or beautiful journals to write prompts from the we're all in this together deck in, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. I know as a consumer, I'm way more likely to buy when a website has Shopify. It has all of my information saved, so checkout becomes a one-click situation, even on small business sites, which makes me so happy because I love shopping small. But it's not just small. Shopify powers 10% of all 
all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Liz M, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Liz M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Liz M. I love the idea because I actually think a lot of people are divorced from the notion of what brings them joy. And that's why we kind of Mm. fill our time with things because we don't. We're like, oh, we'll just watch TV for hours or do Instagram. And even when we go places that are supposed to be awe-inspiring, you're captured on social media because you don't know what that joy is supposed to feel like. But I like, I like the idea that it just can be something that inspires questions or curiosity or it makes you feel different than the normal state of your being. I think it's more permission giving. Absolutely. I think we also feel like, well, we have to manufacture experiences that that bring us joy. You know, whereas if you think like look at babies and they don't they you know, they they don't even need toys. They just use like a cardboard box as like the greatest toy in the world or like a pot. And you know, we don't do that and that's fine. We don't have to act like infants, but we also I think don't require as much um, joy coddling as we think we do maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Which again, I think is that capitalism where we're told that we need all these things to attain. Totally. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. what purchase have you made that's helped you the most to become healthier? Mm. What a great question. Purchase have I made? Okay. This is a small thing. Can it be a small thing? Yeah. I think that's even better. Okay. I am obsessed with my tongue scraper. I've had a (laughs) tongue scraper for probably, you know, 15 years and I love it so much. I've replaced it once. I upgraded to a copper tongue scraper from my, my simple stainless steel one. And, um, I just, I love it. There's it nothing like scraping all of that gross gunk off of your tongue and feeling like you have a mouth renewed to its state of glory. Do you do it in the morning or in the nighttime or both? Both. <laughs> You're like, I do it all day. I do it like 14 times a day. All day. <laughs> I have an alarm set on my phone every 15 minutes. Go tongue scrape. <laughs> You're like, I actually got to go now. It's time to tongue yeah. scrape. That's awesome. I have one too. I use it probably a few times a week, but I do, I find it immensely satisfying. Although I've had friends with Chinese, I know in, in Ayurveda, they're like, yeah, it's so great. You should definitely do it. And then in Chinese medicine, they're like, don't fuck with your tongue. That's how we diagnose you. So it's an interesting, I've had Chinese medicine friends tell me like, don't do it, but I love it. So I do it. Right. Cause they can't read your, they can't. Yeah. Tongue read. That's interesting. Um, I, yeah, I'm like, read my poem man. Yeah. I also recently just got, um, a Berkey water, uh, purifying system and I love it. I really, really love having confidence in the water that I'm drinking and, uh, 
not feeling like I'm taking in a bunch of excess and unknown um, chemicals and, you know, treat water treatments and particles and all of that. I mean, water and food, obviously, you know, just go so directly into our organ systems. And so, um, it feels really good drinking, uh, well purified water that I can just have on my countertop and refill as I need to, instead of having some complex, like under sink system. Yeah. You want to know, um, a fun, weird fact about me? Yes, please. I uh, I haven't drinking unfiltered water in seven years now. Mm. I'm like supremely anal about it. Where I was, Zach and I once went upstate, um, and there wasn't. I forgot. I have like a travel water filter. I always travel with, and I forgot it. And he uh, he went outside and like gathered fresh snow off of the ground. Oh my gosh! And we melted that. And then boiled it to get rid of any sort of whatever yeah. from the ground. But we dra- we drank that instead of drinking the, oh my the tap water because we're really weird about it. <laughs> that is amazing. But I think it's it's better for your microbiome. I don't know. Yeah. It's, the idea of drinking all the gnarly stuff in tap water once you know what's in right. it is fairly revolting. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Have you ever been to a place in the world where you were like, okay, these people really got it right? in terms of living a good life? And if so, where was it? Oof. I have to say, I think Maui is pretty high up there. <laughs> it's, um, do you think it's, it veers too much in the, I, I, when I was there, I heard people complain that it veered too far in the other direction of living a good life, but maybe not as much of a productive or contributive to the world at large one. Yeah, there's definitely, a, I, I think there's certainly, um, uh, you know, a, a tipping point. Um, and it's part of why I left, which I think is also part of the problem that, you know, as with any place that experiences, um, you know, I think they call it like brain drain, um, where the, the people who are from there are choosing not to, to go back and be contributive to the community there in the ways that they are to other places in the world. Um, it's, not, it hasn't grown in certain cultural or intellectual arenas in the way, you know, the, the industries that, that sustain Hawaii are, are agriculture and tourism. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of room for growth, but I also think in terms of having the space to, for people to, uh, you know, grow their own food and really live well and live on land that, that supports, um, growing food and, and where it's easy to grow. And I think, which I, I don't know, I guess, I guess I, I think about that as part of like having, of living a good life because it's something that, you know, as, as food sourcing may or may not become more challenging, that's something that we're, we're all going to need, you know, we're going to need food. So, um, it's true. Yeah. Do you grow your own food in Topanga? I don't yet. Uh, my landlords here actually, when I moved in, asked if I, I, I asked if they had a garden and they said that there's the go, their gophers and rabbits and, you know, coyotes and 
all sorts of animals that will eat anything right out of the ground. And so um, they need, they said, you know, we would need a greenhouse. Um, and so they actually have, are, are in the process of building one on the land here. And so I think I may, I may be able to, uh, use that. They're also, um, building a little deck for me, um, up here in, in my place. And so I'm hoping, I don't know how long they'll last before the rabbits and gophers find it. Do rabbits and gophers come up onto decks? I'm going to try to grow some herbs on, on my little deck when I can. I am not, um, an expert, an expert in rabbits and gophers, but I, I feel like there has to be some sort of herb. Like we use lavender to keep away deer, stuff like that. So I feel like there has to be something you can put there to dissuade them. Yeah. Is there anything you think that we could like anybody living anywhere in like a shitty apartment in New York city or in Siberia could steal from the Hawaiian way of life so they could have that good life without moving? Yes, I do think so. The uh, Hawaii state motto um, is Uamau ke'ea o ka'aina i kapono, and that means may the life of the land be perpetuated in righteousness. And my desire to, you know, have a strong connection to the earth, to understand my place as a human um, in connection to the earth and to the land and to have humility in the face of, you know, the earth and, and how to tread lightly and to, to understand that I have a certain responsibility to take care of the land on which I live and, you know, to, to live in a a certain way that, that causes minimal impact on the earth or as minimal as, as possible. All of that, I think really, yes, comes from how my parents chose to live, but also just from, this pervasive sense in Hawaii that people have that, you know, they are, they're a part of the larger forces of, of the universe, um, and that they're humbled before them and that we really have much more to learn from the earth than, than we probably think we do. And so that is something that, that has informed every part of my life. And I think that's something that anyone anywhere can take on and, and seek out as, as they go about their day-to-day lives. Is there something on a super pragmatic base sense that you think people could do to, to get that sense, even if they live in a city? Yeah, I think just on a really fundamental level, take one thing in your kitchen and find out where it comes from, like all the way back to its source. I love that. Um, that's that's like such an interesting idea. I feel like in my kitchen, I have stuff from probably most of the continents and maybe 25 countries in the world. So it's interesting to, yeah. to think about the journey they've all made to end up on my plate. Yeah, absolutely. I had. Um, a friend once came to Hawaii and was visiting the land where I grew up and I took her out to our little orchard. And I said, you know, here, this, these are my favorite oranges ever, you know, pick one, you can eat it. And she was scared too, because she had only ever had oranges 
just off of the shelf in the grocery store. And I was so astounded. I was like, she's scared. Like she should be scared of the oranges from the grocery store, not the orange. This is literally from the tree. There's nothing healthier than this. And seeing that inversion of, you know, how we should actually be feeling made me realize how, you know, how far from really understanding that cycle many, many people are, which is understandable because they have no, no reason to, to be aware of it. Yeah. I really struggle. I'm like, yes, everybody should be in these cities so that we can have less of a negative ecological effect. But I'm also like, if you're stuck in the cities, then you never have that connection with the land that makes you want to be careful with it or right. save it, you know? Right. But I, I, I really do think I'm always looking for opportunities. Um, you know, I, with my work with Kale and Caramel, I often work with, uh, food companies and I'm always looking for opportunities to tell stories around farming because I think that just for people to understand, oh my gosh, like that's where I went to Canada a couple of years ago, um, with a lentil, the, uh, lentil board. And just to be able to tell that story of like, look, these, these are the actual fields. These are the actual people who are growing the lentils that you're eating. And just for people to make that connection in and of itself, you then think more about the food that you're choosing to eat and how you eat it and where you source it from. And I think just understanding that making those small connections is really helpful. Mm. I totally agree. Um, all right. Last question. What is the most delicious, healthy thing you've ever eaten? Wow. I think the most delicious, healthy thing I've ever eaten is a passion fruit, like straight off of the vine or like that, the ground in Hawaii on Maui where they're like warmed by the sun and you just bite into it to crack the top off and then just slurp the whole thing out. That or a fig also like fresh from a tree. Lily Koi. Yeah. I learned about that there. That was my new, my new world. And I was, I just didn't, I had no idea what it was and I don't think I'd ever had a passion fruit. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I literally just felt like bombarded by them. Oh, it's like, wow, I've never had so much passion fruit my entire life. Yeah. And the flavor is just, it's just intoxicating. There's something for me, um, lilikoi and fig and pomegranate are my favorite fruits. And there's apparently I only like fruits with thousands of seeds in them, but, um, <laughs> and kind of like sexy fruits, They're very kind of the sexy fruits, are like messy and juicy. Totally. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. There should be like, um, a personality type test around yes. how sexy the fruit you like is or something. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, I just, those three fruits for me, I could eat them. And there's something that is just so sensual and powerful and beautiful and nourishing. And like the, the flavors are so complex. Um, so yeah, the, I would say any of those. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I feel like I have 8 million more questions, but I don't want this to become a five hour long episode. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me, Liz. I cannot wait for the entire season of the podcast. I'm very excited. Thank you. Bye.
It takes a lot for a health supplement company to wow me, but Symbiotica really breaks the mold. If you haven't discovered them yet, they make really different products than any other supplement company I've seen before. They have a lot, so I highly recommend that you check out their website and take their quiz to find out what's best for your specific goals, but I wanted to call out a few of my personal favorites. First of all, the topical magnesium. You all know I love magnesium, and I've always wanted a topical spray that wasn't sticky, that felt good and luxurious to use, and that actually let the magnesium absorb into my body, which requires DMSO as an ingredient, which I have actually never seen in any other product. If you have achy muscles or sore feet, this is literal heaven, and I also love it before bed to help with sleep. And then I have become increasingly interested in minerals. We talk a lot about vitamins, but adequate minerals are so key for energy. And unfortunately, it's become harder to get adequate minerals because our soil is so depleted of them. The Symbiotica Shilajit supplement is one of the best mineral supplements that I've found. And the research around Shilajit is profound. There's robust human and animal research that shows it acts on ATP in a way that significantly helps restore and create energy, which is one of the biggest things that I love it for as a low-caffeine consumer. There's also robust research around its anti-inflammatory properties, its brain-protective properties, and more. I think of it more as a whole food than a supplement. It's a naturally occurring resin, and I just mix a little bit of it into my afternoon tea or my decaf coffee drinks. And like all Symbiotica products, there are no additives, fillers, toxins, or artificial flavors. Of course, I have a special discount for you. You can use code LizMoody to get 15% off plus free shipping on subscription orders. Again, that's code LizMoody for 15% off on symbiotica.com. <laughs> 